What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and this is episode number 58, the Beginner Podcast. I'm joined, as always, by the second most handsome doctor in the world, Dr. Austin Baraki. Austin, what's going on, man? Hey, still uh, still working at it, you know, trying to move up the ranks, but what are you going to do? I mean, I suppose one day I will leave this earth and... Uh... <laughs> I'll transiently, I'll transiently uh, move up until I uh, also move off this earth. <laughs> right. Uh, so this is episode number 58. It was titled The Beginner Podcast. We're going to talk about uh, two new offerings from Barbell Medicine. One is the Beginner Prescription. It's a free download that we're, uh, we put out for folks to use and also the full version of our Beginner Template. And we kind of wanted to talk about the elements of the uh, uh, Beginner programs that we're we're talking about so first off though let's uh let's go over some announcements we've got some upcoming seminars still with some spaces left so the next seminar i think we're going to colorado is it fort collins fort collins in july i keep saying denver because that's like the first thing that comes to mind when i think colorado but it's fort collins which i think there are other places in colorado as it as it were as it were yeah so i think we still have a handful of spots or less than a handful of spots left berlin is sold out uh, and then, and that's going to be in August. Uh, and if you're in uh, London in August and you guys want to come hear me and a bunch of other very smart individuals talk at the European Powerlifting Conference, you guys should come do that. And then uh, where are we going to be at in uh, September? I think we're going to St. Louis. St. Louis, I think, is that month. And then somewhere else in the fall is Portland. That's as far as I can recall off the top of my head. Yeah, that I think that's uh, November. Because, uh, yeah, we're off in October. November, we'll be in Portland. December, we're taking off as well. So a few more times to hear us or come to a barbell medicine seminar in 2019, and then we'll roll over to 2020. It seems like this year is flying by. But uh, I'm really excited about St. Louis. I'm going to – you guys are going to get – you know, the barbell medicine crew is going to get a, a taste of St. Louis. We're – yeah, I, I'm really excited for you guys to try the thin crust pizza. Now, you've never had the this pizza before. Not St. Louis uh, – Special, I suppose. Now, if yeah. for the listeners at home, if you guys don't know this, St. Louis style pizza is like very thin crust, like almost cracker thin. And then they use Provel cheese, which I, I'm told, and I, since I've made this on my own, I kind of can verify this to be true. Provel cheese seems to be a blend of like mozzarella, provolone, and I think there's some Swiss in there as well. Uh, and then the, the, the sauce is very tangy and it's just, there's some caraway seeds built in there. It Look, it's great. All right. And if anyone says differently, don't tell me, don't, don't at me, bro. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to know. I can't handle it. We'll find out. It's better than Chicago style pizza. I can confirm. No offense. It sounds like the, the, it sounds like the anti-Chicago pizza. It's the, yes, it's the opposite. It's the opposite. Chicago. It's like, it's like lasagna. It's really lasagna, (laughs) but they call it pizza. So, (laughs) Like bread pudding with tomato sauce on top. Exactly. Exactly. And this, look, I love Chicago. It's a great city. Uh, you know, 
So I don't want to, you know, people get offended when you talk, start talking about places. Places, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> they happen to live in for a while. So, all right, we've uh, we spent enough time jacking our jaws. Let's uh, let's talk about this beginner template and the beginner prescription. So again, um, the beginner prescription is our free version of the beginner template. So we wanted to put out something with minimal barriers to get people involved in resistance training and meeting uh, the physical activity guidelines for Americans. And so we felt like we should put out a version of the full beginner template. So it's the first phase and an accompanying text. You can download that. Uh, we'll link the article and then you can get the PDF uh, from there. We'll put that in the show notes. And then the the total, the the full version of the beginner template is a 60-page you know, ebook combined with a program and a 20 minute instructional video, uh, plus a, an exercise library of things to do. Uh, and it's pretty complete. So we're, we're going to talk about both of those. That's, that's the subject of today's podcast. And, you know, before you turn this off, if you're like, I'm not a beginner, this doesn't pertain to me. Well, if you coach people or if you're the subject matter expert amongst your peers or social group and people ask you, Hey, you're into lifting weights. I want to start lifting weights where do I start? It would be helpful for you to know this stuff. So yeah, in addition to like getting jacked, getting strong and, you know, personal success, you get to give back to the community, help other folks and uh, having this knowledge is going to help you. And maybe you might learn something along the way. So Austin, you want to start off with, why did we even make this thing? Like what's, what was, what's the purpose? Yeah. I mean, I think that people recognize, um, how much we try to promote resistance training in general, but particularly with our kind of health uh, medical type slant. In other words, to um, promote uh, promote health, promote successful aging, um, and optimize people's outcomes with respect to various medical conditions that they may already have. Um, that's why, you know, for example, we regularly go through evidence on a, a pick your medical condition of choice, and we try to survey the literature and find out what's been studied on it and how people might stand to benefit from resistance training. Um, but of course, we can put out all this information and say, it's good for you. Here's why you should be doing it. Here's what, you know, it's in the exercise guidelines, which we'll talk about. Um, but still, relatively few people actually engage in this behavior. And then once we put out all this information, the next question is like, all right, so uh, if I'm sold on this, what do? Yeah, uh, how right. do I actually start it? And you know, we wanted to come up with something that we could stand behind in terms of its um, uh, uh, kind of a broad, uh, broad applicability to various types of the population, meaning like healthy folks, people with medical conditions, people kind of in all stages of physical development or frailty, um, and to get them on the right track with respect to exercise. It was not to create a program that is going to generate a, a world-class powerlifter, uh, but it's something that um, is hoping to increase engagement in strength training um, and to improve health outcomes is the primary goal. Yeah. And I think it's important that you point out that this is not a powerlifting program. Although I would argue that if someone had the genetics and the opportunity and the drive and, you know, all of the intangibles needed to actually become a world-class powerlifter and they're not yet resistance training, this could be a reasonable place reasonable to start, place for, to that start for that goal. You know, I wouldn't yeah, necessarily really start with really anything start else. With anything else, you know. If yeah, they we'll, had, we'll, if they we'll had. talk about. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the the thinking behind it. But I would argue that you know anybody who is truly a a beginner in that sense of the word probably shouldn't be doing any sort of a powerlifting program or anything that uh, you know 
um, uh, promotes uh, early specialization. Ooh, it's a buzzword. Okay, so let's move on. Uh, how did we approach this problem? So the the problem, first off, is that not enough people globally are meeting the physical activity guideline minimums. And that's just a fancy way of saying there are guidelines put forth or there are recommendations put forth for how active individuals should be in order to uh, both promote health, uh, reduce the burden of disease and prevent disease, you know, from developing. And so right now those guidelines uh, were recently updated in 2018 uh, suggest that from an aerobic training standpoint, individuals should be getting 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity aerobic training or 75 minutes to 150 minutes of vigorous intensity aerobic training or some combination of those two. Uh, and they should be engaging in resistance training two times per week at a minimum. So those are the guidelines. They've been in place since 2008. The update in 2018 didn't actually change the recommendations. They just kind of strengthened uh, the rationale why. And then also before they uh, the recommendations used to say that you needed to uh, do these bouts of activity in at least 10-minute intervals uh, which would, wouldn't really apply to resistance training, but now the the current guidelines say, hey, it can be as short as five minutes. And uh, I suspect that'll change over time as well. But in, in any event, right now in America, um, you know, uh, less than half of all Americans are even meeting the aerobic guidelines, right? So just the physical activity guidelines for aerobic training. And then less than a quarter of all Americans are meeting uh, the resistance training guidelines, the twice weekly, and that's self-reported data, which, you know, there's problems with people self-reporting. They're like, yeah, well, they probably overestimate, you know, that's, that's generally what we see. And then the amount of individuals meeting both the aerobic training and the phys- the resistance training guidelines is like 18%, which is, you know, even lower. Uh, and it doesn't get any better for adolescents. It's about the same. So, there's this huge need to increase that, you know, so if this was a quality improvement project that we were taking on, like during residency or med school or something, it'd be like, all right, well, let's try to increase that by 10% or something. That would be a huge win. You know, do you know how many, you know, individuals that we would then get active because we could prevent, you know, our feeling is we could prevent a lot of disease. We could reduce the burden of a lot of existing disease and, uh, and, you know, otherwise promote, you know, health and self-efficacy and all this other stuff uh, in, in the community that were communities that we're involved in. So, that's, that's like, okay, here's the problem. So now how do we tackle that problem? How do we get more people to engage in particularly resistance training? Because it seems like, you know, if I said, hey, half of all Americans are meeting the physical activity guideline minimums for aerobic training, but less than a quarter are engaged in resistance training, there seems to be a bias against resistance training. So we were like, all right, well, we're the barbell medicine crew. Let's, and we're promoting resistance training anyway. Let's see if we can get, improve that. But to what end, you know, what specific targets? And uh, I think that you listed this nicely. We have good evidence right now on roughly three major outcomes. Uh, One is strength. Another one is lean body mass. And the third is cardiorespiratory fitness. Do you want to talk about how we kind of came to those conclusions? Like what, what led us to to those, to those endpoints? Yeah. I mean, we talked about this a bit at our seminar as well. And, and basically we looked at this traditional thinking of like the, the, the general physical characteristics that have historically been talked about, particularly like in the, in the CrossFit scene, all the different types of physical adaptations that one can pursue. Oh, like and the, the if we're going general to general physical, physical skills. skills. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and, and if we're going to be framing this through the health lens, then we um, wanted to say let's, let's look through the evidence and try to find out which of those do we have good evidence to suggest that we should be pursuing those for health purposes. And like you said, you know, we have very good uh, evidence suggesting that strength is, is, uh, has um, strong independent um, associations with, uh, with risk of mortality and disease and, and things like that. Same with lean body mass, which includes both muscle mass, bone mass, things like that. And cardiorespiratory fitness, all of these independent have, have strong independent associations with this. Um, and so we don't necessarily have the same evidence to say that, oh, you know, if you're, uh, if you, if you um, spend a whole bunch of time working on agility, or if you spend a whole bunch of time working on accuracy, or if you have a whole, <laughs> spend a whole bunch of time working on flexibility or, or balance or things like that, that all of those things will have as potent or any at all in improvements in, you know, risk of disease or death. Sure. So we said, if we're going to be putting our, you know, energies towards any particular outcomes, we should be the one, they should be the ones that we have the strongest evidence for. And those should be strength, lean body mass and cardiorespiratory fitness. And then from there, we can go to the evidence from an exercise science standpoint, from a programming standpoint. And how do we most effectively program to generate improvements in these things um, in a, you know, over the long term for somebody? Yeah. yeah. You know, I think it's funny. So like the history of the the 10 general physical skills that CrossFit uses, if you guys don't know, come from uh, the Dynamax ball folks. So they make those big medicine ball things. And uh, Dick Cowley, I think is the the guy's name. And so I I imagine he was pulling like a Moses kind of thing. You know, he came out of the the workshop with two, you know, ab mats that were etched with, with the 10 general physical skills etched in the ab mats. And he said, these are the fitness adaptations and a deficiency in any one of these, you know, indicates a, a deficiency in your fitness. I think, you know, it's very seductive, right? And it, and if you had to think about it for a long time, I could see how people could come to that conclusion. Uh, it would certainly be less seductive if he came out of that same workshop with only one ab mat and then etched to that, like, cardio, strength, lean body mass. People would be like, yeah, cool, bro, thanks. You didn't really add anything to the conversation. Um, but yeah, so so I think that's interesting. You know, that's basically one pillar of like, okay, if we're going to try to promote resistance training, like what are the specific targets that we're going to try to program for? And then there's two other pillars that I think are important to discuss. One being like this long-term development model, particularly in the context of like athletic development, you know, because there are barbell sports and a lot of people listening to this maybe either interested in or engage, actively engaged in uh, barbell sports or other, you know, ath- uh, uh, athletic endeavors. And then the third pillar would just be adherence. Like, okay, cool. You have this perfect program and it, and it targets these endpoints and it, you know, fulfills this long-term development model that you guys are, that we're going to discuss. But then how do you get people to actually do it? So those are like the three pillars that we really kind of talked about. So we, we, we went over briefly this, you know, the, the biological sort of pillar, I would, I would call that, you know, cardiorespiratory fitness, strength, lean body mass. Those are like the three target goals from that perspective. The second pillar I think we should talk about is this long-term athletic, athletic development model. Um, I think a good place to start here would be just to describe the, the lay of the land right now. Um, when we when you talk about long term development, there's really two sort of main uh, uh, categories of like training. One would be specific training or specialization, 
if you've read Bondarchuk's work or uh, or other sort of uh, athletic texts on this, sometimes this is referred to as SPP. And then there is this sort of sampling or diversification or general sort of preparedness, which is called GPP. So there's these two like sort of ways that you can train. You could train like non-specifically or sample a lot of things, diversify your physical portfolio by doing all these different tasks to develop develop proficiency in those things. Or you could specialize and focus on one particular task or goal or, you know, performance criteria. And it looks like, you know, based on a lot of evidence, mostly from team sports and, and youth development, that early specialization is worse at long-term development, meaning that if little Timmy wants to be a professional baseball player and you have him only playing baseball from a very young age, that you, you've done him a disservice. Yeah. Would that be fair to say, you think? fair to say, you think? Yeah, not only would it be a disservice from his long-term outcome standpoint, because there's evidence that those individuals tend to, you know, peter out, not do quite as well in the, in the oh, sorry. Oh, what's happening? Uh, not, what's something fell. Um, <laughs> tend to not do quite as well in the long run. Uh, but there's also uh, in the youth uh, kind of sports literature um, some some pretty compelling evidence that that sort of thing increases risk of injury, a yep. risk and in incidence yep. of injury. Um, when you hyper-specialize somebody too early, when you have them exclusively practicing um, their main sport or a partic- you know, exclusively a, a competition movement or something like that. Um, so both long-term outcomes from a performance and achievement standpoint and, uh, and uh, uh, injury risk and incidents tend to go up with early specialization. Yeah, and we kind of transfer this over. And, and there is, and there is it's emerging it's evidence emerging in evidence. this field too for not just youth you know, but for actual adults and, and, and you know, people who are uh, kind of quote unquote done with a lot of that neurological development that can occur early on uh, during during the human experience, that even specializing early in an at, uh, an adult athlete's sort of career not only re- reduces their long term performance potential, but also increases their risk of injury, um, and, and that from a, both an overuse. Uh, sort of uh, uh, standpoint and then also just like this this fatigue uh, uh, too much fatigue from one particular um, sort of training training stress so and and then and then finally I would would just add that again if if we're trying to design this thing around health as the outcome goal um, then specialization makes even less sense in the sense that you know your health is not going to be strictly correlated to your performance on a particular movement or, you know, particular performance, but rather, you know, all these, all these kind of more general metrics that we're talking about. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so as a so practical as a example, practical example I, I, you know, you think about the term like beginner powerlifting program, and that's kind of like a misnomer to me because there are no beginner powerlifters. You know, there are there are people who are new to the sport who, you know, are getting ready to do their first meet or something like that, but they're not beginners. Most, you know, at least they shouldn't be. Um, if you're a beginner, if you're a beginner with respect to resistance training, you know, that that's certainly a thing and that's who this program's designed for. But as far as, uh, uh, you know, beginner powerlifter, it's like, I mean, you should have been training for some period of time prior to entering your first competition, right? And then having that sort of large base of physical skills and development, you can specialize and then go to a powerlifting meet. That's the idea. 
So from both an athletic development standpoint, in this case, we talk about, think about barbell sports like powerlifting, Olympic lifting, CrossFit, strongman, Highland Games, you know, all that sort of stuff. And then just from a general health standpoint, our idea for a beginner program is to develop this wide diversity of physical proficiency. We want you to be able to lift weights in a variety of rep ranges, have proficiency there. We want you to be able to successfully and efficiently uh, complete a wide variety of exercises, not just a handful. We want you, you know, and we want you to develop, to develop uh, proficiency in different cardiorespiratory fitness tasks. So that way you're not limited when you decide to specialize. You basically have a bigger base of your pyramid to build upon, build upon than if you specialized, specialized early. early. See, no, yeah, see, I, I, in this, I, I actually kind of think about myself in, in some ways here because, you know, I've, um, sometimes it's tempting to think, you know, I started actually lifting with barbells relatively late, you know, um, in, in terms of like an athletic kind of a context. Uh, and so it's tempting to think, man, I wonder, you know, I w- wish that I had started so much earlier. I wish that I had started powerlifting when I was like way younger, I'd be so much better than I am right now. And then I think back and I'm like, well, I grew up and I played soccer and I played baseball and I swam for, for a long time. Um, I'm like, you know, I don't know, would I be any better? Maybe I'd be worse if I had started powerlifting earlier back then versus doing all these other things that I did do before I ended up picking up a barbell and getting and, and kind of specializing in the sport now. Yeah, you'd have certainly have less of a base of physical development to draw from as far as like general motor patterns and skills and like the ability to learn things just because you, you know, your motor learning development was blunted artificially by not participating in a wide variety of different activities. Effectively, you haven't learned enough strategies to try to move your body to complete a physical task. And so if you just kept on that path, you'd be blunted, stunted. Uh, Hey, I feel like I should wrap. Uh, and then, and then, all, and then also the risk of burnout certainly increases. So, you know, in a broad strokes uh, kind of summary, we want people to develop generally, non-specifically, prior to engaging in very specific training. And so that's why we made our beginner template the way it is, and, and the beginner prescription the way it is. Um, if we wanted to, special, you know, we have a lot of different specialty programs available for folks who have either completed the beginner template or something similar, and then therefore want to specialize. Uh, But we do think that there's benefit to developing this big base of physical skills and proficiencies in different tasks before further specializing. And I think we made a pretty strong case there. And this, the data on the long-term athletic development model is, you know, clear and present. It, it, there's a lot of it. and, And, and when you look at you look at that particularly when, uh, with respect to youth going through different stages of development and maturity or maturation and then how they end up doing long-term. It'd be hard to make a case for early specialization. Yep. <laughs> in, in, in most sports, I, I don't want to pretend that this is like universally the case, but, but for most sports and certainly for health, uh, this seems to be pretty clear. Okay. And then this third pillar is the adherence one. I mean, one thing that you and I kind of went back and forth about is like, how do we, you know, get people to do this stuff? Because it's, it's, it'd be hard to argue that the real sort of deficiency in the, in the public's perception of exercise is that it's not that good for you. You know, like 
people know that if you lined up a hundred people and you ask them, Hey, is exercise good for you? They'd be like, yeah. And then if you ask them, well, what kind of exercise you ask them to explain it to them mechanistically or, or, you know, at least the process, most of them, I think would say like, Hey, you know, some cardio is good and some resistance training is good. You know, there'd be some people who would still have this, you know, yeah, aversion to resistance training because they heard that it was dangerous or they perceive that it's dangerous or they had a friend who got hurt, injured. So I think there's some element of education here that we're providing, right? But but I do think that the main barriers to getting people to participate in regular resistance training in addition to the the cardio training is is probably sort of incentivizing them or or convincing them that the pros of doing this way outweigh the cons. You know, they, they may say, I don't have enough skills to actually complete these things, to do these things, right? I don't know how to exercise. I don't know how to lift weights. I don't, I don't know how to, you know, what do you mean? You say like, go do cardio. What does that even mean? Right. So you need to give them the skills to do so. They may have other barriers like, Hey, I don't have access to a gym or my gym only has this equipment. Like, how do I do that? specifically yeah, uh, yeah. and this is something that, you know we, we we i've been wading through the the medic the biomedical literature on this with respect to adherence to exercise factors promoting participation in exercise wrote about this for a research review um talked about it at one of my lectures last month and and so one of the main uh, references that i point people to is this Rhodes um uh, paper from 2017 mm-hmm. titled factors associated with participation and resistance training it's a systematic review of all the available evidence on things that promote you know, participation and adherence to resistance training. And really, they found a few, uh, you know, uh, factors that tended to strongly predict or, you know, or associated with people participating and adhering to resistance training. Those include that their perceived health status, regardless of, you know, not, not necessarily their actual health status, but somebody, if you ask them, hey, are, how healthy are you or, or do you view yourself as healthy? If they view themselves as unhealthy um, or like ill, sick, frail, things like that, they're, they're less likely to do that. Um, their affective judgments towards exercise, meaning their beliefs, their feelings, their expectations about what exercise is going to be like. If they feel like it's going to be really like brutal and unpleasant, um, that's something that actually predicts that people aren't going to participate and adhere compared to, you know, the opposite of that. Uh, and and um, self-regulation behaviors like goal setting, things like that. And then the most important one really that, that we keep harping on at, at every turn is this idea of self-efficacy. In other words, that an individual has some confidence or belief in their ability to uh, you know, execute this task, uh, achieve a certain goal. They feel like they have some sense of control over it, um, that they themselves can, can, can do this thing. And that's kind of the biggest thing that we're trying to promote is the sense of self-efficacy that people can do this. Not only, not only can they do it, but you know, uh, uh, um, give that, put them in the driver's seat in the sense that this is very safe. You don't absolutely have to have, you know, like professional monitoring for every second. Otherwise you're going to like break yourself or that this is dangerous or unsafe. Like, you know, you can do this, you're going to be okay. Um, and, and here's a roadmap as to how to do it. Yeah. Yep. And at the same, by the same token, uh, I'll talk about this in with respect to behavioral change. It's like, once you, once you've identified somebody who's ready to make a change, um, usually these folks are in the pre-contemplation or contemplation phase. At that point, it's all about equipping them with skills and resources to kind of, again, build the self-efficacy, build this sort of belief system that they are in control, they are responsible, they have input, you know, they can determine their own outcomes, they can chart their own path, they can, you know, write their own story. Um, 
whereas people in the pre-contemplative state, you know, with their, these folks in general aren't going to make a change, don't want to make a change within the next six months, those folks usually lack insight into the issue. They, they don't feel like that they play a role in their own health status, for instance. They don't feel like they have control. They feel that, you know, and so a lot of this stuff has to do with um, identifying where people are at and then diverting your resources as the expert, as the, you know, person providing advice appropriately. The person in the pre-contemplative phase doesn't need you to tell them what the physical activity guideline minimums are. You know, they need to, they need information to help them realize that they are in fact in control of their own destiny here, that they play a role in their own health, that uh, they're responsible for their own health, for instance. And so it's just uh, meeting people where they're at and giving them the right, the right tools, skills, and other resources to kind of move them along this, uh, what we call the trans-theoretical model for behavioral change. But so those are the three pillars. And uh, ultimately our, our goals by writing the beginner prescription, again, the free version of the full beginner template uh, that we that we also published. Our main goals here are to get more individuals meeting these physical activity guideline minimums that were, uh, again, first published in 2008 and updated in 2018. We'll link those in the show notes below. And the second goal is to give coaches and health professionals tools and resources to use. So if you're a coach and you're responsible for, you know, telling people what to do in the gym, coaching them, and you're like, well, I get a lot of beginners, which you probably do if uh, <laughs> you're running a successful practice because, you know, a lot of individuals are, are new to training, then here's your resource. This is something, you know, uh, to, that you can use and that you can kind of make fit your own demographic and your needs. And we kind of give you this mental model to do so. And that if you're a health professional, you're looking for good information here too. You know, one of my biggest gripes with the physical activity guidelines and then the American College of Sports Medicine's, you know, uh, further take on resistance training is that it's not specific. There's no program, you know, they, they say you should do muscle strengthening exercises for all the major muscle groups of the body. They give a, a set, a set range, I think a rep range. They say like eight to 12 reps and they don't say how many sets you should do. And they don't tell, tell you what exercises you should do. They, there's no program. There's no printout. So we wanted to do something that was very specific. So that way the health professionals and the clinicians, and then also coaches have something that they can actually use a tool they can use. And then the third goal is again, addressing those, that biological pillar. So strength, increasing lean body mass, improving cardiorespiratory fitness, and then tacking on maximal adherence uh, to the extent that we can communicate that remotely with folks. So those are, that's kind of how, how we thought about coming up with this template, what our goals were for, for, uh, you know, writing it, you know, and, and it, its implementation. And then, uh, and then we, we set off to do it. So the, <laughs> it's kind of funny how this, how this thing worked out. Right. Uh, cause I think, do you remember the first time I actually came up with the, the matrix, not like the movie, right? It's not like they, yeah, could have, I don't know. I think it was probably like Toronto, you know, maybe Toronto? six or eight months ago or something like that. It was, it was, we were talking about this at some of our seminars, like, yeah. you know, earlier in the year, last year. Yeah. So, so what happened, the background to this is we had these ideas about, you know, sampling versus specialization and then sort of how we would want to on-ramp quote unquote, a, a, a new trainee that wanted to do engage in resistance training. Right. And, and a lot of those kind of 
stemmed from what we knew about exercise programming in general, and we just hadn't put a pen to paper. And so I, I want to say it was either Toronto's seminar of last year, or maybe it could have been the New York seminar of last year, 2018, like April or something. And I was doing the programming lecture and I had this thought like, huh, maybe, maybe we'll just like write this program out, you know, and like give people a taste of this. And so I made this like matrix of like, okay, so we're going to pick prior priority exercises, secondary exercises, tertiary exercises, and like, you know, different rep ranges. And, and here's how we're going to, you know, go about prescribing the, the weight on the bar. And here's how we're going to progress the, the volume and engage in progressive overload, all these things. And then I, I remember at the end of, at the end of this uh, seminar, or at the end of that lecture, you came up to me and you were like, so uh, you're going to like write that down or, and uh so we kept i kept working on the seminar presentation because that was priority at the time and we really tightened that up and and made it and made it flow really nicely and kind of gathered our thoughts about it and then um i decided to actually you know write it down I, i when did i do you remember when i sent you the the first iteration of this thing I think that was probably like four or five months ago. And then I sent you some, a lengthy email of my initial feedback and thoughts and criticisms and things like that. Yes, yes, yes. And then, it, and then <laughs> some more time transpired editing and then we kind of really just finished it up uh, a couple of weeks ago. So for the, for the, the full version, the 60 page uh, ebook accompanying the beginner template, which has, which is pretty lengthy. And then uh, we released the beginner prescription, uh, just yesterday is May 20, May 29th. So, um, yeah, it's been a process. This has, you know, been a long time coming. And, uh, I think it's just a distillation of all of our ideas about training, uh, beginners. So let's actually talk about some of these specific components here. Uh, Austin, you want to talk about the, like the overall setup with the phases there's. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So, so the way it's set up is actually with three kind of distinct phases and the way it's initially written out is as three, four week blocks. Um, but we want what one of the things we want people to make sure that they don't miss or that they that they that they note is that the fourth week. So basically, eat like the first phase, for example, each week builds up to the fourth week. And once you hit the fourth week, the idea is that you just repeat that week indefinitely until you know some met, the, your, your metric of choice for for progress um, you know stagnates or regresses um, you know. Pro- probably for more than like a couple of weeks. And then you can move on to the next phase from there where a similar, you know, there's some changes that happen in phase two and some changes that happen in phase three, but basically that builds up each of those build up to a fourth week that then um, ends up being kind of like this repeating microcycle, so to speak. Um, you know, you repeat that week indefinitely until something's, you know, stagnates or regresses and then you move on to the next phase. And, and the idea is that, you know, there's, there's multiple components that get um, kind of overloaded and progressed throughout this in order to build that more general base of kind of physical development that we're looking to, uh, looking to produce. Um, but, you know, exposure to volume, there's alterations to, you know, intensity ranges and rep ranges and things like that to develop this good base so that once you finish it, you have, you know, a solid base uh, of, of uh, development, of experience, and then you can take that and move into whatever next phase you want, um, whether that's a strength-focused or a hypertrophy-focused or an endurance-focused or a skill-focused or another sport or ent- another training modality entirely. Um, you have, you know, a pretty solid base of strength and kind of physical skill uh, developed by that point. Yeah, 
the the idea is that by the completion of this beginner beginner template, you'll have set the stage for all future training endeavors that you could possibly imagine, uh, where you were previously unprepared to do that. And so that's that's kind of the idea or the ultimate end goal um, and, and kind of how we design this. The three phases, yeah, are uh, effectively built in succession that phase two has a little bit greater um, n- amount of total stimuli compared to phase one. Phase three has even more stimuli than phase two, and it just builds upon itself. Um, the idea is that we're giving people just enough stimuli to drive the you know maximal adaptation that we feel like we could safely glean from them and then once that stops working as demonstrated by either a plateau or a regression which we give specific sort of guidelines within the actual uh beginner template ebook itself um, then you would just move on to the next you know training to the next phase versus just okay well let's just start all over again at the same point that you were just at which doesn't address the underlying problem the underlying problem behind not making progress and you can you know, ascertain progress by either adding repetitions at the same weight, for instance, or adding weight at the same repetition and effort range, or reduce increasing the total amount of work that you're doing. There's a tons of ways that you can like you know make quote unquote progress, uh, provided you hold other variables the same. Um, but the the point, the reason why that stops happening, the reason why you stop improving, is because the stimulus that you've um, imparted upon the person is either wrong, it's the wrong stimulus, or it's not enough stimulus. And so the way that we see this working is that if you're not seeing progress, that's clear and present, you know, it, data suggesting that, hey, this is one either the wrong stimulus or, or, or not enough. And so we change both going into the second phase, right, to address both both issues. And then the same thing from the second to the third. Uh, that that's it, it, compared to just starting all over, where you're not addressing that problem at all. You're just <laughs> you're literally just spinning your wheels, right? So, uh, yeah, okay. Uh, so that that covers the phases, like the the overview of like how that's set up. Uh, it's three day. Uh, sorry, the uh, the next phase that I uh, or the next component of the template we should talk about is exercise selection and you and i hey man we had we had some disagreements here we did which is, <laughs> let it be let it be shown because people think that we don't necessarily disagree but we yeah, did yeah we disagree on a handful of things this and bcas no the people, yeah. in, the com- people <laughs> right. in the comments are gonna be like what, what's up with bcas that's for a, that's for another podcast where we talk about things we've changed our minds on um <laughs> so exercise selection now originally and i think if if you've been listening this whole time, then you kind of have a sense that we would like you, we would like individuals to pick many different exercise, uh, many different exercises to develop proficiency in, um, in order to, uh, rather than specializing on just a handful of exercises. So that was the initial plan, um, is just a, a much wider variety of exercises from the get go. Now, you came in and you said, look, man, I like, I like that idea. It makes sense, especially from this long-term athletic development model, but I'm worried about the adherence. I'm worried about the people feeling like 
I've never squatted before. And now you want me to do three different kinds of squats or a squat, a leg press and, you know, uh, a lunge or something like, like that's, it's, it's a big ask and you didn't feel comfortable putting that out there for the first phase. And so that actually kind of influenced how we structured the phases. So to, why don't you take us through your thought process here with the first phases exercise selection? Yeah. So, so yeah, the, the initial, the initial thought process was to introduce more variety up front. And, and I had a few kind of ways that I was thinking about this. One is that of course we think that movement in general is fairly safe and we think that you know movement variation in general has some benefits with respect to motor learning skill acquisition things like that of course on the other hand is that not everybody necessarily buys that and there's still going to be this really pervasive deeply entrenched idea among people who have not necessarily fully digested maybe our content on this is that you know they're that like by default people out there are going to say i have to have perfect form otherwise this is unsafe which we would obviously take issue with, but um, in recognition that that's something that could potentially be a barrier, then I thought that giving people a bit more practice with the regular with um, with the same movement in the early phase could kind of allay some of those uh, some of those concerns. Yeah. Another uh, another thought I had was you know thinking about if we're trying to make this accessible to a very large swath of the population, you know I see a huge variety of patients and, and clients, and I see people from you know the highest. Uh, end of performance all the way to the you know most sick and frail and and those with very very low levels of education and knowing that kind of level of education um, and and understanding of this stuff is uh, a pretty good you know correlate predictor um, of exercise uh, participation and adherence um, I didn't want somebody who is just wanting to get into resistance training to look at something and just with the number of different exercises just kind of eyes glaze over completely. Um, now, with that said, we did want to make it accessible to people um, f- who, you know, there may be people out there, there are definitely people out there who are uh, maybe a bit more reluctant to exercise using barbells. Um, they may have some aversion, some fear, something like that. And we don't want that to be a barrier to them engaging in an activity that is going to be very health promoting. We don't want that to it, prevent them from developing physical strength or lean body mass, which can be developed in many, many other ways than just with lifting barbells. Um, and so what we did is we all, is we actually, um, while we pre-programmed it with defaults, default kind of barbell movements that, that we like, like the squat and the bench press and the deadlift, things like that, um, we also, in each phase, gave people the opportunity, uh, gave them kind of a drop-down menu for certain exercise slots that they could select um, kind of their exercises based on individual preferences, goals, you know, uh, equipment availability, things like that, so that if somebody... Um, you know, uh, open up the program and they're like, you know, I'm not going to squat and they don't have me or you there to try to sell them on the idea um, and say they'd be more comfortable doing something like a leg press. They can drop down that menu and then swap it for something like that and follow the program and they can get plenty of benefit with respect to strength increases, lean body mass improvements, things like that from doing a machine-based program or a dumbbell-based program. We have options available for people basically to say, you know, there are lots of ways to run this. You can and you can get substantial health benefits from, from many of them. Um, so here's your here are your options. Additionally, that would give them a little bit of ownership over the program, puts them again in the driver's seat a little bit. They can say, I designed my program and here's what I'm going to go do. A little bit of self-efficacy uh, potential uh, benefit from that standpoint. Yeah. Um, so I think that kind of summarizes most of what my thought process was, um, you know, with respect to the first phase and exercise selection. Yeah. 
I mean, I agree with the the self-efficacy point, you know, which was one of the main ideas behind giving people options to choose, period. And then also just like, what do you want to do, right? Like, we just can't make strong arguments for particular types of exercises, you know, with unique benefits relative to their analog. And for an example, like the leg press versus the back squat, like, you know. One gets you better at doing the back squat. One gets you better at doing the leg press. Both improve hypertrophy. Both improve strength as measured by some tertiary or non-squat, non-leg press, you know, proxy of leg sure. strength. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and additionally, health metrics. And right? health so metrics. We, can't, yeah, make health a, metric, we yes. can't make a specific argument for, you know, a low bar squat versus a front squat for blood sugar management or something like yeah. that. So for health yeah. stuff, we become even more kind of exercise agnostic. Yes. Exercise nihilist or something. <laughs> yeah. Exercise agnostic. I like that. Um, I think, I think our biggest, uh, our biggest source of disagreement and, and I understand why your position on like the first phase having way less variation potential than the second phase and third phase. So the way it's set up now, there's, very little exercise variation in the first phase. There's more exercise variation in the second phase, um, which is considerably more than other beginner programs. And then there's even more availability for people to kind of choose their own adventure with even more exercise variation in the third phase, kind of building up to that, the final form of if they want it. Correct. Um, I think, I think the reason why, I mean, what I'm hearing you say, which, which does make sense to me is that if you were presenting this at like the American college of physicians conference, Right. And you have all these doctors who are, you know, listening to you opine eloquently about the benefits of resistance training and how those fit into the physical activity guidelines and all this other sort of stuff. And then they, and then you show a screenshot of the actual program and it's got nine different types of exercises. Immediately they're like, what, what the heck is this? You know, they're like, this is so complicated, blah, blah, blah. Even though like literally every one of their fears could be you know, allayed and, 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 and dispensed with careful discussions and uh, all this and evidence and this, that, and the other, it would be a bigger obstacle to overcome from an implementation sort of standpoint. And so I agree, you know, that if you show somebody a program that's got less exercise variation to begin with, that it probably appears at face value to be less complicated and therefore easier to adhere to, especially with people with like low physical literacy. Uh, on the other hand, I don't think that we have substantial evidence, either scientific or anecdotal, suggesting that low amounts of exercise variation or rep range variation or any other variation actually improves adherence. It, yeah. I, uh, yeah. On my review of the adherence literature, I definitely cannot say that I found anything to say that, you know, that, 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 um, that sort of, that sort of thing impacts adherence or, or likelihood of participation. Sure. By the same token, I'm not terribly confident that increased variation or increased rep, you know, in exercises or rep ranges improve adherence. I, I, I'm of the opinion right now, I'm carrying the null hypothesis, you know, and it just, that probably doesn't matter is the way I think about it right now. And then if there's evidence to the contrary that comes out or merges, then we'll change the way we think about it. But yeah, so right or now, like many right things that may matter on an individual basis. In other words, some individuals may find it, you know, prefer it. yeah, prefer it, which, which just makes the whole thing a wash. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, so right now the way it, you know, you kind of reach the final form by phase three of the beginner template, which has the amount of exercise variation we'd like a newer trainee to be engaging in, you know, after they've bought into it, 
the adherence is good, right? And they're sort of ready to engage in that variation if they want to, you know, that that's the final form. And then after they've kind of completed all those phases, then they're ready to go either specialize or continue to diversify or whatever they want. So that's the idea from the exercise selection standpoint. And we like giving people choices. If you don't want to back squat, you can leg press. If you don't want to leg, you know, do this, you know, you have choices. If you don't want to bench press, you can do a hammer strength, you know, something. Um, okay. Next fate, next, uh, a component of the template we want to talk about is volume, particularly in how this impacts progressive overload and the rep ranges that we use. So one of the shortcomings of many other beginner or novice templates or, or pro exercise programs out there, in my view, is that there's this hyper specialization, hyper early specialization in particular rep ranges. They're either focused on fives or tens or 15. I mean, whatever you, you name it, there's a program out there that is literally, you know, only exclusively programming one particular rep range. And I, I can't make sense of why for a beginner, because again, our idea is to build this big base of physical skills, this big, uh, you know, sort of history of proficiency in different physical tasks. And so if we talk about like strength, for instance, Strength is force production measured in a specific context. You cannot break the two up, all right? So anytime you're describing strength, you're talking about it in a specific context. So for instance, if somebody's doing sets of five only and they get they add more weight to the barbell or the exercise that they're doing for a set of five and the range of motion stays the same and the effort level stays the same, well, yeah, they got stronger. If they were doing sets of 10 instead, and the rep range and the effort level stayed the same and the range of motion stayed the same and the exercise stayed the same and they added weight to the bar, they got stronger there too. That's just strength in a different rep range. So the idea is that for a beginner, we know that we want them to develop proficiency in a wide variety of different rep ranges because different adaptations occur in different rep ranges. And the idea again is to have this big base of physical skills that you can later you know, apply specifically to whatever goal or goals that you deem important, but specializing early in one set of adaptations seems uh, foolish. Yeah. The other, the other uh, idea that I had here, particularly once we decided that in the first phase, we were going to hold more of the exercises uh, constant in the first phase, but doing them at slightly different repetition ranges. Um, since as we'll get to in the next section, we were going to introduce kind of autoregulation RPE concepts pretty early uh, with these individuals Part of my thought was that, hey, if we expose them to these different rep ranges with the same exercise hitting RPE targets, that might actually um, kind of shorten the, you know, it, they might actually be able to learn the application of something like RPE maybe a little bit more quickly if they're like, you know, they hit a set of four and, you know, at a certain load and it, they, they're going to call it an eight, but then they come back the next session, you know, and maybe they're able to do the same weight for, you know, a set of seven or maybe they do more for seven and then, then that has Daniel. to like recalibrate, reframe you know, their belief as to what they actually did on Monday. And then if they have to do it for a set of 10, so it kind of helps refine, you know, what hard is uh, when you get exposed to these variations in, in, in repetition range and you compare it to maybe how many more you thought you did or how many more you, you, you actually did compared to what you expected, things like that. So I thought that that would actually provide some benefits there as well from a rep range standpoint. Yeah. You're just giving people more insight into their own rep continuum. You know, it's like, all right, I'm, good on squats for a set of four here at this weight. I'm good for squats for a set of 10 here. Good for, for squats on a set of eight. And it kind of gives you a broader picture of like your current level of physical development. And that kind of helps you predict like, all right, what do I need to do? What should I do in order to, 
improve my strength or, or, or other. Yeah. You have more kind of coordinates to triangulate your, hey, <laughs> your you know, imp- hey, you know narrowing down your, your, uh, your, your error bars there. Yeah. It's 3d strength. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the next component of the template that I think is important to discuss is, Oh, can you pause one second? Sure. So bef- before we move from repetition range, the other component with, with respect to volume is the number of sets. Oh, yeah. That's, right? I was going to uh, talk about that. I forgot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so number of sets, you know, people will notice that the first week, you know, people work up to one top set. They'll do multiple sets on the way up during their warm ups, but they'll work up to one top set. And those we add additional kind of working sets as the weeks go on into the into the fourth phase. And so. You know, this is this is one way of kind of providing some progressive overload, but but also, um, you know, we're also improving their work capacity. We're improving their recovery capacity, and then from a health standpoint, that's where we can actually make the strongest argument for this, right? So, if I had, you know, say I had a, a, a frail individual or a diabetic individual or somebody who's coming in to train for health reasons, right? If I could put them on a program that over the course of a few weeks. Um, they did like say minimal training volume and it got them to deadlift, say, you know, 185 pounds. Cool. That's an awesome outcome. Um, but if I compared that and I had an alternative program that got them to pull 165 pounds, but they were doing more sets from a health standpoint, I would uh, expect that the latter program would actually provide them with more uh, benefit in terms of doing more exercise volume, because that's actually what we see more tightly correlated to um, to health outcomes from both a resistance training standpoint and from a conditioning standpoint is a total amount of training volume. Yeah. Um, so from, a, again, from a health standpoint, that's kind of why our bias falls towards in that, in that direction in particular, I, you know, I, I can't make a strong argument, you know, in the long run that squatting 300 versus 275 makes a bit of difference for somebody's health, but uh, I can make a pretty strong argument that, that, you know, squatting for, you know, uh, 12 sets a week is going to provide them likely with better outcomes compared to squatting six sets a week. Sure. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of one of these, these things we keep seeing in the literature over and over again, we call it a dose effect, a dose, dose response effect, meaning that the bigger dose of exercise volume in this case tends to produce a bigger response improvement in health outcomes in this, in this case. So, and from a training volume standpoint, you know, probably one of the biggest criticisms people might have after seeing this or one of the criticisms they'll, they'll say, well, yeah, but those warm up sets that you talked about, they're all at lighter weight. So, you know, they don't count because they're, they're not heavy, but the, the reality is if you define, you know, high intensity resistance training as anything greater than 70% or 60% you see in the literature sometimes, uh, then all of the warm up sets are high intensity. And the biggest correlation between health outcome improvement potential, so like blood pressure lowering effect or, you know, hemoglobin A1C lowering potential is between training volume. Yeah, exactly. So, so it doesn't matter the difference between, you know, 80% versus 83%. That's, that's a twud. It's time wasted on useless detail. It doesn't matter from a health perspective. Um, And then, with respect to actually like performance improvements, you see that same dose response effect, meaning in training volume, once you've selected the correct intensity range for the desired outcome. So one thing that we said, uh, I think this was in a, one of our training vlogs was that, uh, the intensity that you use determines the type of adaptations that you're, you're likely to get. 
And for a beginner, we want a wide variety of different adaptations. And then training volume determines the magnitude of the adaptations, the, the response, you know, that dose response effect. So that's why we, we gradually add volume over the course of each phase. And each phase has more volume than the one preceding it. So phase two has more volume than phase one and phase three has more volume than phase two. And then once... Yeah, if we're trying to get you to work towards meeting physical activity guidelines, but you never actually start doing more work, (laughs) then it's unlikely that you'll ever be able to tolerate the amount of work necessary to meet the guidelines that have a very strong base of evidence to improve your health. Correct. And, you know, so we're still going to get resistance from people who are just like hardcore, the stronger I am, the healthier I am, and I don't care about my conditioning or something like that. And it's like, well, that's fine, but you're accepting some residual amount of risk by being, you know, sub-conditioned, yeah. uh, so to speak. You do or, that to your own you know, peril or at your own yeah, peril. Yeah, exactly. So so we're kind of approaching this. We're, we're, we're removing our own preferences for lifting really heavy weights from a powerlifting standpoint, sure. right? So <laughs> that, that took a little bit of uh, work to do. Yeah. The other, the other thing is, you know, if you're saying, well, being stronger is the only thing that matters at some point, again, because there's this, do- there's that same dose response effect between training volume and strength outcomes, you're going to need to train with more volume. And if you're never condition yourself, or prepare yourself to tolerate that amount of work, all you're doing is blunting your own future strength potential. So again, long-term development model, we want to build the sort of work capacity so that you can tolerate enough training to actually get strong long-term. I'm okay with sacrificing, you know, five or 10 pounds or even more in the short term to gain 50, 100 or more pounds long-term and to make sure that you're still actually training 10 years from now. So yeah, especially to make sure that you're alive and you haven't dropped from a, you know, heart attack. Yeah. You know, we should go with like a 10 year risk score for like, uh, (laughs) for resistance training adherence or like resistance training progression. Okay. Uh, next component of the template programming variable would have to be do with intensity. So I can hear the internet now, which is probably a first hearing the internet. I feel like, (laughs) uh, we used RPE, which stands for rate of perceived exertion. This scale was originally developed by Gunnar Borg, a Swedish uh, exercise physiologist. Uh, the original scale was uh, numbered from 6 to 20, and it was used to determine or be a proxy for how high someone's heart rate was during aerobic activity. So basically, and it had all these you know, uh, different activities that were listed for each level, and so a person would go out and complete or do some cardio, do some conditioning. And then they would ask, Hey, how hard was that on the six to 20 scale? Here are, you know, approximations of each different, you know, RP six, RP seven, eight, nine, 10, all the way up. And then they would rate that they'd say, Oh, I was at RPE 13. And you could multiply that by 10. And that would give, uh, an approximation of their heart rate, which was actually validated in a bunch of different studies. So that's where it started. Mike, you share later, um, kind of simplified this and applied it to, uh, resistance training instead took it from a six to 20 scale to a one to 10 scale. And there's actually other applications where Borg himself and other researchers have actually changed the scale, uh, to, to allow this to be used in different settings. And, uh, the reason why we, an RP right now for resistance training is labeled one to 10, 10 is a maximal effort could do no more reps. It's the hardest, it's very difficult or a miss. So you did not complete successfully complete the, the weight and RPE eight or nine rather is you could have done one more rep RPE eight. You could have done two more reps, RPE seven, you could have done three more reps, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we use this because we think this is a very good way to communicate how heavy, how hard 
the efforts should be, the subjective rating of exertion. It's, we think, and I'll let you comment on like the correlates between the subjective ratings of exertion and like injury outcomes and stuff like that. We think that this is a necessary, you need to have this element in your training to help you regulate the total amount of fatigue that you're imparting upon yourself. So you have objective markers of like how much work you're doing. So what's the weight that you're using? You know, what's how many sets, how many reps, et cetera. And then so that you can use those to gauge progress and help determine what you're doing. But then also having a subjective rating of how hard the thing was gives you, again, more coordinates to help figure out like, am I actually getting stronger? So the, the example I always use is let's say on day one, you have somebody who squats 315 pounds for three sets of five at RPE eight, meaning that each set, he could have done another two reps, right? Each, each set was relatively fast. Didn't look like he was going to die, you know, on any of the sets. And then 48 hours later, he comes in, he squats 320 for three sets of five. Each set was at an RPE 10 bone on bone, Baraki scale, 10 eyeballs popping out of his skull. Okay. Now, if you just looked at the objective components of that workout, it looks stronger. He added five pounds. But if you take into account the subjective sort of ratings of exertion there, it appears he's probably stronger on day one. He had more potential to squat an even heavier set of five, for instance, if that was your benchmark or your test for strength or a one RM, if that was your test for strength, than he did on, you know, on day two. So we think that this is a good way to help people take ownership of their own sort of training and choose their own uh, loading parameters based on how ready they are to train, how recovered they are, you know, all the other life stress that's going on. You know, it's a good way for them to choose their own weights rather than using discrete sort of loading intervals, like just add five pounds or just add 5% or just, you know, use this percentage of your one RM, which if you're a beginner, you don't know, you don't have, and is not relevant after you did it, after you tested it at the beginning of a program. Um, and then the, the final part of this is despite all this, you know, talk about, you know, your feelings, how, how hard was it, et cetera, et cetera, which does take into consideration a lot of these intangible, you know, indescribable and undefinable sort of things that affect performance. Uh, our default recommendation is to add weight each week on the same exercise with the same rep range under the same conditions, add weight without, you know, without increasing the amount, the effort. That's the idea that represents a actual performance increase and that actual strength adaptations have occurred. If by adding weight, the effort level goes up markedly, you're not any stronger. It's just seven days have passed. So. Yeah, I think there's, uh, there's multiple important points to make here. Of course, you mentioned the history of it. And of course, it's also been starting to be studied a bit more in the resistance training world and Azordos. And I think, uh, I think uh, Eric Helms got involved with, a, with some research with respect to RPE and reps in reserve um, for uh, both trained and untrained individuals, as well as a more recent paper that was just published actually on May 16th by Buskard and, and colleagues on uh, using comparing basically rep max RPE percent one RM and, and reps in reserve uh, style training in, in, uh, 
in um, approximately 70 year old older older adults and they did just fine and they 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 got essentially the same outcomes and they found that the RPE training to be more tolerable and enjoyable and we know again based on the data I cited from Rhodes um, and the adherence and participation data that those sorts of what we call effective judgments your beliefs expectations feelings about exercise how it's going to feel what it's going to be like um, is it going to be just absolutely crushing, brutal, miserable, or or not? Um, for if we're prescribing this stuff to the general population and we actually expect them to adhere to it, that kind of thing matters. Um, you know, the other thing that's nice about using these sorts of subjective scales is that is their very subjective nature is actually a benefit because I view it as something that, as you said, captures those intangibles. It captures. The sum total of biopsychosocial stressors that an individual is under, as well as their fatigue state. And by capturing those things uh, all at once, we can, again, more effectively dose our stress in a given session. So one example of this, you know, when we look at rather than predictors of adherence and, and, and uh, participation in training, when we look at barriers to resistance training, uh, you know, I gave this recent lecture on resistance training for in the setting of cancer patients. And, you know, they actually in particular have huge barriers to participating in resistance training, how they're feeling, their fatigue state, uh, pain, you know, say they get a chemotherapy infusion and, the, and then they're actually going to show up to the gym. This kind of stuff has been described in the in literature where it's like, you know, that's going to be a huge barrier if they're going to feel markedly worse in the week after they get their, their chemotherapy training and uh, chemotherapy infusions. And this applies to really any kind of uh, condition, human condition where how you're feeling and how you're performing fluctuates on a day-to-day basis by, again, all these biological, psychological, so, so, social stressors that we are under at a given time. And failing to account for that um, represents kind of a, a similar bio, biological reductionist approach where you're viewing the human as a machine, you're giving them a dose of exercise, and you're expecting this predictable output that you just throw this input at them and you get a predictable output, which is really not how this kind of stuff works. So we're doing this uh, early on because it's a skill that needs to be developed, and you may as well start early. Um, it's something that uh, can that, that we feel can likely, you know, it, it's again uh, putting the individual in the driver's seat a little bit more from a self-efficacy standpoint. They can kind of steer the ship a little bit. And as you said, if the fear is that an individual is going to uh, sandbag things or not, uh, you know, not progress as a result, um, well, there's two things to that. Number one, as you said, our expectation is that they should be adding weight every week, and that's the specific instruction. In fact, their instruction, if things are stagnating or not progressing, is that they move on to the next phase. And so an individual who is moving through this template, knowing that, hey, at some point I need to be moving to the next phase, well, that, ne- that transition comes when I'm no longer adding weight, so I need to be adding weight now. Additionally, the variation in rep ranges with the same exercises, as I mentioned earlier, is a way that they can kind of develop this skill. And, and, and finally, you know, if somebody doesn't make as rapid of progress as possible in their first few weeks to months of training, we don't care. We absolutely do not. We are not concerned with, you know, whether they squat 225 or 195 uh, in their in their first 12 weeks. We're not concerned with that at all. Um, we're trying to obviously induce progressive overload and generate this adaptation. But again, we're focused on health, long-term development, developing this base of physical skills, um, exposing them to good, um, uh, sufficient doses of resistance-based activity and sufficient doses of conditioning-based activity to get the best health outcomes we can. Um, this is not something that somebody we would expect somebody to run to pre- peak and prepare them for a powerlifting meet. 
Um, you know, because again, if you're a beginner, you shouldn't be doing that anyway. Um, so I think that there are multiple, you know, we're just used to hearing these criticisms nowadays. And while I understand them from the standpoint of, you know, if you if your if your preferred metric was how fast can I get you as strong as possible, then you know, sure, I might buy the arguments from that standpoint. But it's pretty difficult to care about those things in the setting of a beginner when we're focused on long-term development, when we're focused on health, it just doesn't matter quite as much. And then the last thing I'll say, as you said, is that we have evidence, you know, correlating chronically elevated uh, kind of session RPEs and and which would then itself probably correlate to high set RPEs, meaning that the more regularly you're having just crushing, brutal sessions, really, really hard sets, things like that, those sorts of things tend to uh, strongly associate with injury risk, incidents of pain and injury. And so you can make super, super rapid progress, but if you end up getting injured by the end of those weeks and you need to, you know, take a, a, a substantial back off or, you know, uh, restart or, or you quit altogether, then again, nobody cares how rapidly you got your squat up to some, you know, low to moderate amount as a beginner. Um, so we're trying to set people up for, you know, longer term success. And we are just unconcerned um, with how much, you know, they lift at, a, at some arbitrary time point. Yeah. I mean, I think if someone asked me, like, how do I get as strong as possible? I would say, well, what's train for a decade? Yeah. What sort of timeline are we talking about? Right. Because because if you have, you know, a year or more then what you do in the first three months, it only matters if it either hurts you like, uh, you know, you can't train for a significant portion of that year. Right. Or, Or doesn't build this sort of base that you can then train from later. Right. Like just stymies your growth. So under no circumstance other than like, hey, look, someone, you know, kidnapped my family and is holding them ransom and I only have, you know, three weeks to get my squad up as much as possible, would I have them specialize early on? And if that happens, like you should look for a body double. Like that's what I think you should do. So, <laughs> all right. <laughs> uh, okay. Next uh, programming component has to do with frequency. This is a shorter one. Um, you know, if, if you were maybe somebody who helped write the, physical activity guidelines for Americans and you look at our program, you're like, well, why are you guys resistance training twice a week? And you only start with conditioning once a week. Maybe, maybe that should be, what's that? Yeah. 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 So like, why does your program start with three times per week? Yeah. You know, they, they might say, why does your program start with three times per week resistance training, one time per week, aerobic training versus the opposite relationship, three times a week, aerobic training versus, uh, and one-time resistance training. And I, I don't have a great answer for that other than we're barbell medicine. And I, <laughs> and, and, and I think that when, you know, so that's like thing one is like, we are one of our roles that we're choosing to take on is to increase the awareness and increase participation rates in resistance training, meaningful resistance training, meaningful, meaning improving, you know, clinical outcomes or improving performance for, in, you know, th- uh, in sport. And then, um, the second part is there clears to, there appears to be this clear and present bias against resistance training participation in America at least. Um, I don't have data like globally, but you know again if fifty percent or just you know a little bit less than that of Americans are meeting their aerobic activity guidelines and less than a quarter are meeting their resistance training guidelines, it seems to be a gap there needs to be addressed. So our assumption, my assumption is that um, individuals will be active outside of this template addition in addition to this this template 
and that the resistance training is the big lacking component. Uh, but we do address the the conditioning and the and, and uh, requirements as well, and we try to build upon that week by week and phase by phase as well. Um, do you have any further, you know, as far as as far as why we think that we should while we're starting out with three days per week of resistance training? No, I mean I think that's a reasonable uh, way to way to frame it. And of course, you know, there are going to be people who may not be willing to do that, or for some reason feel they're unable to do that, and they want to resistance train twice a week, which of course would still meet the, you know, the general uh, exercise guidelines to resistance train twice a week. And so, you know, if you, if that's what you end up having to do and do what you got to do, but we still want you to uh, meet the conditioning side of things. So I'll let you, you want to talk about the the conditioning and steps piece. Yeah. Just one more thing on the, on the frequency though is, is, you know, one, one thing that people may say is like, yeah, well, what about a, you know, my 70 year old grandmother, you're telling them to train three times a week to begin with. And uh, yes, I am, you know, they may not, want to engage in barbell training or they may, I mean, I'm not making assumptions. I mean, maybe your grandparents are, you know, totally in on this stuff or maybe they want to do machines. I mean, whatever we, we've set it up so they could do either. The point is that we want the dose of exercise to be clinically meaningful. We want it to actually do something. And the problem with most programs does, you know, aimed at that population is that they're underdosed in addition to being underutilized. So, I'm not worried about people overtraining on this program. And I think just more broadly, I'm not worried about people overtraining. I'm worried about more people undertraining. I don't know if we should be worried about overtraining and, and undereating. People should be worried about undertraining and overeating. Oh, that's <laughs> okay. So when talking about the conditioning component, this is the last thing of the, about the template that we'll talk about as far as designing it. So again, as a reminder, the, the conditioning, the aerobic training minimum recommendations are 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity physical activity, which is about a brisk walk or, you know, not even a brisk walk. It's a little slower than that. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty moderate. Moderate intensity in the guidelines and the literature for, for people who are already pretty active probably represents a low intensity activity for them. Yeah, right. Yeah. I think it's under, it's three to six, 5.9 mets and then uh, high, uh, vigorous intensity uh, recommendations are 75 to 150 minutes, which is anything above six minutes, which is brisk walking or jogging. Or, uh, I actually think heavy gardening just, it's like 6.1 mets. but in any event, yeah, we talk about that in the beginner prescription. You can, you can check that out for a further description. Uh, so the way we structured this is that, you know, we assume somebody's completely sedentary coming into this. And so we wanted to introduce the conditioning elements, um, gradually so we start out at once a week and then it goes up to twice a week and then in later phases you add in some high intensity interval training if someone wants to engage in that and we also are making step recommendations and this is actually something i just recently had to add to the full version because i just thought about it a little bit longer and read some more data and felt like this is important to include but it's in the beginner prescription right now um the you know people talk about well how many steps per day should i take and is there actually good evidence on doing you know the amount of steps per day and as far as reducing risk of like a cardiovascular event, like a heart attack or a stroke or reducing incidence or development of type two diabetes. Uh, the answer to those two specific questions are yes. Also there's uh, evidence to reducing development or preventing weight regain and preventing the development of obesity as defined by BMI um, with the amount of steps per day. And again, there's this dose response relationship in bigger dose, gives you a bigger potential health, uh, uh, health benefit, 
gives you a potentially bigger health benefit. So, and the increments that they use in it, they use are 2000 steps usually at a time, 2000 step increments. So the average steps in a couple of these trials that people were taking at baseline at, at time zero was about 5,000 steps a day. Uh, this is in particular, in, uh, specifically talking about cardiovascular events and uh, type two diabetes prevention. So, they start out at 5,000 steps a day, and then those individuals who increase their average step rates by 2,000 steps, so up to 7,000 steps, and, may, and by the end of one year, had about a 10% uh, reduction in risk of cardiovascular event and about a 25% reduction in uh, what they call dysglycemia, which was actually a blood sugar reading greater than 125 nanograms per deciliter, which can be, you know diagnostic of type two diabetes. Yeah. So pretty, pretty big stuff there. And then this study that actually just got published yesterday on steps and mortality, uh, uh, in, I believe it's in women, um, what suggested that there's this threshold of amount of steps per day, but then continuing benefits above that. And the threshold was 4,400 steps per day on average. And that once if increasing steps beyond that actually tended to provide us mortality, uh, benefit, so reduction in mortality past that. So we felt like that addressing steps was going to be a, a benefit to our audience here and people running this or people using this prescriptively. So we start out with a set amount of steps uh, recommendation, and then we gradually build upon that in each phase. And uh, the idea is by the end of this uh, that, you're, uh, that you have increased your total steps by at least 2,000 steps per day on average. That's the kind of target we're shooting for here in the full version. In the the interesting thing about this paper that you t- that that we cited on on women uh, um, was that they actually uh, analyzed both the number of steps people took and the intensity. They're like walking cadence basically, and they they said that you know um, there was a, a, an effect of you know the the intensity of the exercise on the outcomes, but that effect disappeared once they controlled for the volume of steps or the, you know, the, the total volume of work, the number of steps, suggesting that the total volume of work uh, with respect to, to conditioning in this context actually appeared to play the dominant role um, compared, to, compared to the intensity of the walking. Yeah, and that's the same thing we see on conditioning at work in general and as far as uh, uh, attaining as be- health benefits from improved cardiorespiratory fitness, that once you correct for total volume, the intensity of it matters little, which is why you don't see huge differences between high people who do a lot of high intensity interval training versus low intensity, steady state, moderate intensity cardio. It's the, the volume. Again, there's that dose response effect and the uh, intensity appears to play a little role, a small role, uh, if any, uh, with respect to health outcomes. So we talked about why we developed this thing. We talked about the individual components and like our rationale for developing it. So how do people use this thing, right? And the way I view it, again, there's three like main, you know, groups of individuals that should be using this. One are people who actually just want to start training. The second group would be coaches, you know, or people who are responsible for uh, uh, telling other folks how to exercise and then health professionals. So let's start with individuals. So you got a person who's brand new. Dr. Baraki, Dr. Baraki, I love the way your eyeballs look when you deadlift a heavy single, I want to be just like you. Where, where do I start? Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, the first question for any of these sorts of people is, 
getting a good assessment of the individual, what their goals are and what their health status is. Right. But the idea is that almost regardless of where they're where they're at and their health status, our goal is to work them towards the physical activity guidelines and to establish this kind of broad base of uh, base of physical development, which is kind of why we tried to make this as applicable as possible to, you know, a, a substantial swath of the population. So we've provided uh, individuals with resources on if they're choosing to pursue it kind of with the pre-programmed kind of default barbell exercises with our resources on how to execute those things. If somebody is more comfortable with some of the other things, they have opportunities to select, you know, different exercises and pursue it. But, you know, basically the the, the process of getting somebody initiated with this stuff is uh, uh, figuring out where they're at now and identifying barriers and then trying to knock down those barriers to get them ready to do what they want to do and put them in the driver's seat. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, it's interesting that you started by saying, you know, yeah, you have to ask them what their goals are and then, you know, find out what their barriers are, which is the the two like main, main things, because you're going to try to tailor what this program to those goals and, and identify the barriers that you need to address and I don't mean tailor the program by necessarily changing the variables, but you might change the exercise selection because we allow the individual to be able to do that. And, you know, you might change the way you phrase things. But, you know, if somebody, I could have two individuals to walk in, let's say they're twins. One is like, I just want to get as strong as possible, you know, in the next, you know, five years. And the other person says, I just want to get as big as possible in the next five years. I'd start them on the same program. Cause I still want to build that big base of physical, of, of training development before they, you know, kind of go their own ways. So, but I would probably explain it to them differently. You know, one, one with a, uh, description of how strength is developed over time. One is with a description of how hypertrophy is developed over time. And just kind of, again, to get people to buy in. So they actually do it. And then, you know, you don't just waste all this time, you know, giving somebody advice and then they go off and do five through one or something. Okay. <laughs> the second, the second kind of subgroup you know, within these, like this individual category would be those who are returning from injury. So right now we have a, like a knee rehab template. We've got a low back pain rehab template. We've got a, uh, injury rehab, uh, consult service. It's very busy. And people are like, Hey, I just finished this, these rehab templates, or I just got off the consult. Like I, uh, and usually our coaches give them, you know, uh, Hey, here's how I think you should return to normal activity from a programming standpoint. And some of them have ongoing relationships where they actually specifically tailor that, but you know, other individuals who maybe haven't, you know, been gone through that or have access to our, our coaches or are doing it on their own might be, might be saying, Hey, I just got over this injury. Where do I start? And I, I would start here. I mean, the only time that I, the, 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 the kind of caveat I would say here, like if this was a very, or a more advanced sort of lifter, uh, you know, let's say that they've, it's you and you're like, Hey, I hurt my knee and I've had to do all this other stuff, non-specific training to, you know, to get over it. And it's been five or six months since I've actually, you know, trained regularly. I would put you on a similar sort of, you know, program, maybe even this one, but I probably wouldn't have you start at phase one. I'd have you start at phase three or two, you know, just depending on what you were ready to do. It might not, maybe not the beginning. But I think this template can be used in that scenario as well. And then in the same breath, people who are coming back to barbell training from a layoff, like you haven't trained for six months. You're like, yeah, I moved and then I got busy and then my gym burned down. And then, I mean, I don't know, whatever. (laughs) And they haven't been able to train for a long period of time. The only difference there is I probably wouldn't have them start at phase two or three like I would the injury person. I'd have them start at the beginning. So big kind of caveat there. And that's just based on, 
an opinion. It's not like this evidence-based thing where we have like a thousand, you know, individuals in each group and we say, oh, they do better if you put them in specific categories. Just it's kind of how I think about it. All right. The second group. Now this, this one I'm excited about coaches. We, you know, how, what would you say our split is at the seminar as far as people who attend? I, I, the way I, the way I think it's like, we probably have like 30% are 30 or 40% are actual coaches. Like that's their main occupation. And then we have like 40% to 50% or more who are just like enthusiasts, right? Like educated enthusiasts. And the other are like health professionals. Hey man, look, we agreed on something. So, but, but these coaches, you know, I think that again, knowing all the work and thought and consideration and research that it took us to kind of come up with these recommendations and the rationale behind them, knowing all of that, I'm like, man, if I was a coach, this would be super useful for all these new trainees that I have coming in my, you know, booming personal training business or coaching business. Um, so this would be useful. And, and further, the actual rationale behind making each decision would be useful at developing if you wanted to ha- develop your own slant on this. Um, and so I think that's why, that's why the, the actual full version of the beginner template with the ebook, I think is actually very useful. And I know this just sounds like a pitch, but I, I just want you guys to read the thing, you know, like that's why we came up with the free version. Like, Hey, if you don't want to pay for it, like here's a condensed version. So you can at least consider these things that we're talking about. Um, do you have anything to add about the coaches? <laughs> Brevity. All right. But the last one I think probably is the most exciting for you. Uh, especially during our consider like our discussions about how to actually you know break these phases up and, and this that and the other health professionals you know we we wrote the article or the articles for up to date we're working on another one uh, on sarcopenia uh, about strength training and, and primary care but we didn't have like a recommendation like yeah just do this I mean you wrote there's programs in the actual thing I think you had a dumbbell program in there maybe a machine program in there but but now we have our own like here's the program that we recommend. Here's why we recommend it. And here are our considerations. Oh, also here's evidence. I think, I mean, if I, if I was like, you know, if this is a, uh, Baraki dessert. like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think all this stuff is just the, it's, I wouldn't even say it's the culmination. I would just say it's another step in this process of all the things that we're doing and what's going to ultimately be fleshed out even further in more detail and hopefully an even more compelling case in book form. So, you know, this stuff is, this stuff is is just kind of the product of many many years of of coaching and training and reading and practicing and and um, so yeah I think that there's definitely a whole lot of of um, thought that's been put into put into this stuff and um, we hope that people like it we hope that uh, you know healthcare professionals now feel like they have a little bit more uh, they're they're a little bit more equipped both with the knowledge base on why this stuff is important because that's known to be a barrier to exercise counseling is physicians not being aware of the evidence on it or not feeling that it's important. Hopefully we're making it clear that there's lots of evidence and it is important. And then with respect to how to do the counseling, um, that's something that physicians are ideally trained in. This is kind of what we talk about with, you know, understanding models of behavior change and understanding things like motivational interviewing and how to identify barriers and help patients or help clients work around those things to improve participation and improve adherence all this stuff about behavior change, I mean, that's really what we're in the business of, both in medicine and in coaching. And it's very difficult for people 
argue just as difficult as it is to you know to change beliefs um, that we deal with a lot as well. Uh, it's difficult to change behaviors, and so we're trying to put out more resources, tools, and evidence based information to accomplish that. Yep, hundred percent. The only the only two additional things I'd mention for health professionals because they might say, "Hey, look, I'm I'm glad you guys put out this resource for us. The program's going to be useful. I like that you guys." provide citations, uh, and that you provide, you know, rationale, that's all great. But, uh, I still have some reservations about actually, you know, recommending my patients to do this because I'm worried that they're, uh, have elevated risk of something bad happening for them. How, how can I like identify those individuals who are at risk of having a bad outcome from a single bout of exercise? Well, you're in luck. There are two additional tools that uh, we're going to give you access, that we are going to give you access to, but we'll link you to in the description and the show notes here. So one, if you're not familiar with, is the ACSM PAR-Q. It's a pre-participation questionnaire that the uh, client, if you're a coach or a patient, if you're a healthcare professional, fills out on their own. And if it identifies any red flags that they would need like medical clearance prior to exercise. So that's a nice you know, tool to have. And then if you're a medical professional and you're seeing somebody to try to clear them for exercise, rather than just like think about this, you know, and succumb to your own biases, we, you can use the PAR Med X. It's the medical version of the uh, participation questionnaire and there's specific PAR Med X questionnaires for each medical condition or for many different medical conditions like pregnancy, cardiovascular disease, et cetera. So it just kind of gives you more evidence-based sort of analysis tool for, hey, should this person be clear to exercise with no contraindications or do I need to go a step further on this workup to make sure that they're going to be okay or not okay? So, all right. You know what's Austin, I'm, I'm so mad at you right now. <laughs> Why? You're like, oh, we'll just do this quick podcast. It'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So well, let's, let's wrap this thing up. Let, let's talk about criticisms here. And then, yeah, then, I have, then, I have one thing that I have to add here before we, before we wrap up, what, what criticisms come to your mind that you want to address? I mean, cause I feel like we touched on many of them kind of along the way with our, with the design. Of yeah. It. All right. So, so I'll just run the list and we, and we make sure we talked about them all. So one first thing people are going to say is, well, if you just wanted to put out this resource, why are you charging for it? I, I don't think that if we're trying to lower barriers to people to, uh, train that the difference between the full version and the free beginner prescription is, is big enough to like prevent folks from participating in resistance training. Rather, I think that the full version of the beginner template gives both the trainee additional resources that I think are valuable and also the coach or healthcare professional additional resources. Um, and I, you know, I think it's worth the, the price that it's listed at. So that's one criticism I think that people would bring up that we haven't addressed. We talked about RPE. We talked about the exercise variation. We talked about uh, different volume considerations, intensity, the conditioning aspect. You know, one thing that people will ask is, well, so you're saying that this program is ideal for everyone? And I think both of our responses to that would be definitively no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that we, we, we can't feasibly put out uh, some program that every individual, when they click on the link, it just pops up with the, the perfect program for them as an individual. We have to we have to kind of put out something. And this, what we've done is try to account for a lot of kind of individual variation with respect to like preferences and goals and things like that. For example, the exercise selection piece and giving people tools to take this in different directions after they finish it, for example. 
But there is no such thing as a perfect program. And if somebody came up and, you know, in, in, in a few months down the road, uh, somebody comes back and tells us that they ran the program and they maybe didn't get particularly awesome results of it, I'm, I'm going to be like, well, that sometimes happens. You know, it, it, regardless of program, we look at every, every uh, 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 you know, exercise science study on the matter, every resistance training study, in, and, and both in the scientific world and in the real world, we see this like we talked about in our programming podcast, we see this spectrum of training sensitivity, this inter-individual variation in outcomes. So there is no program that works for everybody, um, assuming, you know, depending on how you define works, of course, but there's always going to be a spectrum of responses. And so some people are going to respond better than others. Some people, of course, are going to, there's going to be some variation in people, you know, there's still going to be variation in people's adherence to this thing. Even if they choose to run this program, maybe they skip some sessions, maybe they Maybe they uh, don't do certain exercises. Maybe they don't do the conditioning and and they don't get as good of results uh, as a result of that. And we're like, you know, that's what happens. But would would we say that you need to just like, you know, do it repeatedly until you do it perfectly? And no, just, you know, move on and try to try to uh, progress in in, uh, accordance with your goals in accordance with, you know, guidelines in accordance with, um, you know, what we're trying to accomplish with respect to health. And you'll still come out, you know, probably ahead in the end compared to if you hadn't trained along the way. Yep. Sometimes it do be like that. (laughs) The most profound thing you've said this whole time. That's right. That's right. Uh, Hopefully people like it. So again, we don't feel that this is perfect. Um, We are happy to, you know, uh, uh, um, take people's feedback. We may change it or release updates or something like that. Um, So, you know, let us know how you do. And if we end up thinking that there's some changes that need to be made, some adjustments, then, you know, happy to do so. We don't think that we have everything figured out, believe it or not. Believe it, <laughs> believe it or not, I'm walking. Okay. Uh, okay. Hey, guys, gals, people tuning into our podcast. Thank you for joining us here, episode number 58. This was the beginner podcast at Barbell Medicine, where we try to bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. For Austin Baraki, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. We'll catch you guys next time. See What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.